This episode of the American Birding Podcast is sponsored by the Grays Harbor Shorebird Festival, held May 3rd through 5th, 2019 in Hoquiam, Washington. Come celebrate the spring shorebird migration with the Grays Harbor Audubon Society at one of the great Pacific Flyway stopover spots. See hundreds of thousands of plovers, turnstones, sandpipers, dowitchers, and more as they rest and feed around Hoquiam and the Grays Harbor National Wildlife Refuge. It is a real spectacle and an amazing natural phenomenon. It's not just about the birds. Birding Without Borders author Noah Stricker is the keynote speaker this year. For more information, go to shorebirdfestival.com or call 360-560-8162. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. I have a couple things to talk about right up top. First, did you hear birding on NPR last week? Well, it was fantasy birding and it was on the NPR quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Part of the bluff the listener game where the panelists tell three outlandish stories one of which is true and the call-in contestant has to guess which one is the right one as you probably guessed from my introduction there the the birding one was the right one in any case this is how the game the fantasy birding game was characterized by comedian adam burke Fantasy bird watching involves picking a spot in America frequented by real life bird watchers and then scoring points every time the actual avian enthusiast reports seeing a rare or common species to an online database. I know, right? Sure, you can go bungee jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge or fly a wingsuit through the Grand Tetons, but for sheer white knuckle excitement, nothing beats the adrenaline pounding thrill of scoring eight points every time some birder in the field spots a red-breasted nuthatch, blue-footed booby, or hope of hopes, a San Clemente loggerhead shrike. Because it's March, baby, and are you ready for some bird watching? So... I have thoughts. First, San Clemente loggerhead shrike is a deep cut. That is nice. It's also not a full species, man. I mean, come on, Adam Burke, get with the program. Also, I get that fantasy birding is supposed to sound outrageous, but it actually sounds pretty great in that segment. Uh, so great, actually, that I ended up going and, and signing up, but I also can't remember to add a new place every single day, so I'm, I am very bad at it. But I know a lot of listeners are playing fantasy birding, so like, you know, more power to you. It is a fun combination of bird stuff and geography stuff that is normally right in my wheelhouse. So there is, you know, no mockery there. I like people doing fun and irreverent bird things. I just, I just can't do it. I tried. A third, if you are familiar with the show, the segment ends with an interview by an expert on the subject and you know playing a little snippet of that interview reveals the answer npr actually interviewed me for that segment uh, but they didn't use it so uh, you know I, i'm getting rid of all my tote bags anyway your loss npr i imagine this will be the greatest hit to public radio since those car talk guys were caught on public transportation is this another example of birding hitting the mainstream Yo, maybe. I'm not sure. It's definitely one of the sort of birders are crazy bits that, uh, you know, I'm mostly dead and buried now, but it's also a comedy show. And, you know, not for nothing, we're, we're kind of easy marks. Uh, at least we were the right answer and not one of the made up ones. So that's something. So, you know, whatever. You know, maybe next time we'll get Terry Gross. I know she's one of us anyway. 
On the show today, some thoughts about Bill Thompson III, who passed away recently, as you may have heard, and what you can do in his name. But first, crows, jays, and magpies, they they do some extraordinary things, and Dr. Kaylee Swift keeps a close eye on them when they do. She's with me to talk about crow culture and crow funerals, and that is all after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of March, very beginning of April, 2019. We are all waiting for spring to arrive. This time of year, it always feels like it is taking forever, with the Rare Bird finding is a little slow right now. We did get a couple first records to note. One from South Carolina, where a trumpeter swan in Colleton County represents that state's long-anticipated first. As the introduced population of that species around the Great Lakes grows, we are seeing more and more records in the southeast, a trend that is unlikely to slow. A dusky thrush that turned up at a private residence in Washington County, Oregon, is a first for that state, and only the second record for the lower 48. There was a little bit of drama surrounding the fact that the homeowner did not report the bird's presence until after it had disappeared, but that's the way it goes sometimes, and the bird still goes on the state list, which is a point of pride even for birders who didn't get to see it. California goals are also showing a little bit of a movement to the East Coast, where both New Jersey and Connecticut recorded their fifth records of that species in the last couple weeks. And short-tailed albatrosses were seen both in Washington and British Columbia waters last month. We still don't know a ton about that species distribution in the North Pacific, but they are noteworthy nonetheless, if for no other reason, because they are big and dramatic. Hard to go wrong with that combination. This is just a little bit of the notable records for the last couple weeks. If you want to keep up with all the records, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning and join the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Corvids, the family that includes crows, jays, magpies, and others, have a a well-deserved reputation for intelligence and and fascinating social behaviors. My guest today knows that maybe more than anyone, Dr. Kaylee Swift has spent her entire academic life studying crows and jays. She's documented some really cool and bizarre behaviors and has insight into the ways that their brains work. She's currently a postdoc researcher working at Denali National Park, working on with Canada Jays, where she, where she's speaking to me now. Um, I don't know if that makes you the most distant guest I've ever had, but it's definitely top four. Uh, welcome, Kaylee. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. Why corvids? How did you get involved working with this uh, admittedly fascinating group of birds? So when I was an undergrad at Willamette University, that's sort of the time in your life where I knew that I wanted to go into some kind of science, particularly wildlife science, but I was figuring out like, what, what is it that really captivates me as a, as a question, as sort of a central research area? And so in exploring different kinds of research and, and reading different papers, I had this aha moment where I realized that I had always loved birds. Uh, ever since I was a little girl. And I'd always really loved questions about animal intelligence and, and how that relates to their social lives. So when I started reading about some of the research going on in ravens specifically, that was kind of my aha moment of realizing that I could I could marry these two fields that I really yeah, loved, birds yeah. and looking at sort of animal cognition and social behaviors. So that's that's really where this came from. And then from there, it was just about networking and meeting the right people and being able to sort of 
uh, lay this path forward so that I could eventually go on to study this as a graduate student with John Marslow at the University of Washington. Right. He was he was involved in that sort of um, the infamous, I guess, the crow mask study. Uh, they got a lot of press several years ago. I, I should clarify that's not like crows wearing masks or masks of crows, <laughs> but you know, people wearing these sort of weird Halloween type masks to determine, I guess, whether crows could recognize individual humans. Uh, can you explain how that study worked and, and what you ended up finding? Yeah. So it's been, it's been widely known for centuries that crows and other corvids seem to recognize individual human faces. But that wasn't something that had been scientifically vetted yet. So this study that took place, I mean, gosh, it was, it was probably 13 years ago yeah, now. Yeah, a long time ago, yeah. It was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> what um, John Marsliff and his collaborators wanted to do is, is, was really scientifically vet that idea. So they would put on these masks. And when they started the study, they, they had a caveman mask <laughs> and a Dick Cheney mask. Right. <laughs> uh, and they would put that caveman mask on and they would capture crows, the, you know, using our sort of standard operating procedure of how we catch crows, which is, you know, when, you, when you're handling a, a caught crow, that's not a life-threatening experience, but it is a, a terrifying experience for the bird, right? Yeah. Like. If we think about ourselves in a really scary experience, like your memories of that experience are, are very solidified. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're very right. clear often. And so what they wanted to, to show was if they wore these particular faces during this initial threatening experience, and then they put individual markers on the birds in form of um, these colored kind of ankle bracelets, basically bird bands, and they let those birds go. And then they asked, okay, well, if, if they encountered those faces that they saw handling them during this capture experience, are they now going to treat those people like a predator or are they just going to treat them like any other Joe on the street? And what they found was not only did the captured birds, the ones wearing those uh, color bands, respond really strongly to seeing whatever face caught them again, but they also spread that information via social learning. So Hmm. they could start to scream at that person, other crows who weren't there, who weren't present for the initial threatening experience would come in and be like, well, you're really screaming at that, you know, caveman mask. I don't necessarily know why. uh, But if you tell me it's dangerous, I believe you. And so now I'm going to start, if I ever see that person, I'm going to start treating them like a predator and alarm calling for all of us now. So crows hold grudges and then they pass those grudges on to the other crows in their immediate vicinity, more or less. That is exactly true. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So do they, d- does it work the other way around? You Were you able to do things that were, I don't perceived as kind to a crow? And do they remember that and recognize those people? So that was actually what I looked at mm-hmm. uh, as an undergrad, that was my first real crow study was trying to figure out whether or not I could show that crows build trust with people who feed them regularly Mm -hmm. and that they remember those people. And what I found was, uh, I have no doubt that that's true. I mean, it is true, like point blank. Studying it though, uh, is a little bit more difficult uh, in contrast to that threatening study because If you think something is dangerous, it takes one experience and you're like, that's it. I've made up my mind. And they have really clear behavioral markers when something is scary. But when you like something, that actually, that's an effort that takes a lot more time to build. Mm -hmm. Trust is something that, that takes more time than fear to cultivate. 
And they, they don't have as clear markers for showing like, I like you, other than w- what we did find was that they would get closer to people who they were used to feeding them than uh, new people feeding them. Hmm. So it's one of those things there, there isn't, as far as I know, a scientific study because we didn't, we weren't able to publish our results. Um, so there isn't a scientific study in the, you know, that's kind of the counterpart to that faux study that I just described. But as a scientist and as a person who watches crows, I have zero, zero doubt that they learn perhaps even with more enthusiasm the people that they like. <laughs> yeah. At the very <laughs> least uh, ambivalence, I would think they, they're, yeah. they're fine around you. Yeah. Yeah. You've done a lot of work sort of describing how crows interact with their dead. Uh, sort of interesting concept. I suppose your general public's been calling them funerals. You can, I call them funerals if it's easier for you. You can just say, you can just say I call them that. Yeah. <laughs> sure. All right. I, and I want to start by explaining why I use the word funeral to describe the work that I do. Because I do. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I've sort of put my hat on this word. And um, there is a certain level of risk in using that word because it's such an emotionally loaded word for us as people, right? right? When we think about yeah. funerals, that means something very specific to us. Uh, And what I mean when I use that word is that what we see crows and actually many other corvids do, and what we've seen them do, again, for centuries, this the idea that they react strongly to their dead was not something that I contributed to, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the the world at large. People have known about that. It's actually in a lot of religious texts, for example. Oh, really? These Hmm. observations. Uh, But I use the word funeral to communicate that when a crow, for example, dies— other crows take notice of that death and they gather around it. So hmm. I could use the scientific term, which is cacophonous aggregation, but <laughs> no one would know what I was talking about. <laughs> right. So right. I, I right. use funeral as a way to easily and effectively communicate animals. Th- these animals notice when one of them dies and they do something. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of caveat that with now whether part of that is a highly emotional response like we experience as humans. I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. I really can't say. That's got to be tough. Crows don't have many expressions. Yeah, they don't have many expressions. (laughs) And as much as I tried in the course of my PhD, my um, technology for translating crow cause uh, just never really panned out. So <laughs> I still can't yeah. just ask them, which would be the, the easiest thing. It'd be the easiest way. Yeah. But yeah, basically what happens is when a crow dies, the first crow that encounters it will produce an alarm call and that alarm call attracts other birds to the area. So the research that I did as a graduate student was trying to figure out what might motivate that response? And there, there are a variety of ways that we could explain it, and they're not mutually exclusive. So grief mm-hmm. might be one of them. But like we just talked about, it's an incredibly difficult, if not impossible, right. thing to you know, methodically test. So we didn't get that component, but that's not to say it might not be happening. Mm-hmm. Instead, what we looked at was danger learning. And the reason for that was that there was some scientific precedence. So there was another study on... Uh, what are now called California scrub jays, um, that showed that they seem to get pretty nervous and wary in areas associated with these dead jay bodies. So we Hmm. wanted to look at that in crows and see if we see the same pattern. And and indeed we did. And and how we tested that is we would start feeding crows for a few days to get them used to coming 
to a particular area. And when I say crows, I mean specific territorial pairs, not just like big hordes of them at the McDonald's dump. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so we would get that pair used to coming to a particular area over the course of three days. And then on the fourth day, we would introduce our dangerous element. And we had a few that we tested, but we'll, we'll limit it to just one for this conversation, which was mm -hmm. somebody uh, in a mask holding a dead crow, kind of like you'd hold an hors d'oeuvre plate. Mm -hmm. And then for the next three days, we would <laughs> keep feeding them. And after a week, we would invite that same masked person to come back to the territory in that area where we had been feeding them. Only now they wouldn't mm -hmm. be holding the crow. It's just like a like a crow David Lynch movie. Yeah, yeah. A person in a privy mask holding <laughs> a crow. Yeah, it's <laughs> a very strange image. It, yeah. it was a very strange image, and because we did all of this work in suburban and urban Seattle, <laughs> um, yeah. it got a lot of attention. Some of it was really positive. People were like, "I know what this is. I saw that mask study before. This is awesome." And some people were like. I'm calling the police. I need you to leave. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. Are you going to murder me? <laughs> With a crow? With a crow? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so what, what we were able to test by, by doing that was, one, whether or not in those three days where we continued to feed them after that scary event, if we would see any change in their feeding behavior. So mm -hmm. are they not going to come to the food anymore? Because yesterday it had been th sitting there with a dead crow. Or is it just delayed? Or is there no difference? They're like, well, there was a dead crow here yesterday, but you know what? There are Cheetos here today, and I love Cheetos, <laughs> and I'm there. I'm on it. Yeah. And yeah. what we found was they don't just avoid those places outright, but they did show a significant level of wariness where it would take them longer huh. to come down to that food than it had in those uh, feeding days before that funeral event. Was it because they was it because of the presence of the dead crow, or was it because they were sort of connecting the food with the dead crow, and maybe thinking that the the food was the cause of the dead crow? That's a good question. I I I suppose that I can't explicitly disentangle those two things, but because, yeah, those are yeah a lot of the same. But because same the dead crow emotions. is being held by a person. Uh, oh, right. assumption would be that 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 that's the dangerous connection and not and right. not to the food, but the, oh, but I guess okay. that is possible. And then the other thing we tested was again when that person would come back after a week. Now even though they're not holding a dead crow, are the birds going to freak out? And we found that they did. So in those two ways, we were able to show that this this behavior is at least in part being motivated by danger learning, where they're learning hmm. that localized places associated with these dead bodies that you need to show a little bit more caution in them. And if you see a person holding a dead crow, that person now becomes a new predator in your area. And you need to be mm, on the lookout okay. for them and treat them like a predator if you see them in the future. And they're able to pass that information on to the crows in their immediate vicinity. They are. And it's, as far as we know, it's not a like, you know, that night at the roost, they were like, oh my God, mm -hmm. you'll never believe there was <laughs> you'll never believe woman. Yeah. She had, you know, black stringy hair and, and dead looking <laughs> eyes. And they, and that's, it's more that in that actual uh, sort of funeral event or, or in any future aggressive events, it's just sort of a learning by proxy. Like they see knowledgeable birds responding in the specific way to right. this person. And they're like, okay, so that's okay. Is that what we do? Cool. That, okay. I'll do that too. <laughs> we think hmm. anyway, we're, we're, we can't be positive, but that's the most sure. parsimonious way to explain how that knowledge is, is passed on. 
Is this sort of behavior unique to your, you know, American crows, your study species, or is it exhibited by other corvids as well? You, you, I guess you sort of mentioned California scrub jays, but um, is it sort of widespread among corvids? It probably is. Uh, the only other group that have had um, experimental studies to look at kind of how they respond are common ravens. And it's, okay. it's a very similar that thing. You know, they scold yeah. and, and they avoid the area. There haven't been any other studies looking at whether or not anything aside from the American crow, you know, can learn people associated with their dead flockmates. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. There's also, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence to show that magpies, black-billed magpies do something similar. Um, but as uh, you may or may not know, the, the Corvus genus, which is the genus that includes crows, ravens, rooks, and jackdaws, is quite large. There's actually 45 different species of bird in that genus. So a lot of other kinds of crows, and uh, as far as I know, no one has really looked at this behavior in any of those other species, but I, I would be really surprised if we don't see a high level of consistency in terms of how they respond to their dead. Sure. And that, and that's that got to make uh, American crow a really, you know, a great study species because they are so familiar. They are so accessible. Um, they have all these unexpected facets to their natural history that you can look in and, and kind of apply that to, to other, as you say, corvus species. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I totally agree. And that's one of the reasons their accessibility is one of the reasons that I so love them. I mean, as a scientist, it's, it's great. It makes my field work a little mm-hmm. easier, but as right. a science communicator as a as a birder and naturalist i also love them because they're this this great access point to the natural world for a lot of people oh, totally. who live yeah. in cities or, and or live in other kinds of areas where they maybe don't feel like they have a lot of access to nature and if we can look at crows as being wildlife instead of urban pests which they're <laughs> pests, not yeah menace yeah uh, th- they are this amazing opportunity to learn about nature and birds and animal behavior with arguably one of the world's most intelligent, charismatic animals out there. I mean, it's really oh, totally. quite, quite an opportunity we have. <laughs> sure, yeah. You know, you're currently, speaking of your field work, you're currently in Denali in Alaska working with Canada Jay Cognition. How similar are they to crows in the way that they interact? So my work actually focuses more on foraging ecology than cognition. Mm-hmm. Um as far as how similar they are to crows, give, give me a, a few more years. Right, fully understand that question, but um, I'll, I'll offer one little anecdote, which I think is so incredible. So people who feed crows, uh, I think one of the things they'll notice, and kind of going back to our earlier conversation about trust building, mm-hmm. crows are so interesting because they, they pay attention to us in this way that is really unique. And people who feed crows will tell you that it it takes a long time to really build the trust of a crow. Like you can feed it every day and they may not let you get very close for months or even years, depending on how uh, much persecution they've experienced in their previous life or how much happens in the area in which you live. And crows we know are are really attentive, for example, to human gaze. So this is a question I get a lot of. Like Hmm, I fed the crows... And I've noticed that they only come down and take the food after I leave or after I look away. Like, is that, is that real? <laughs> and it's totally real. Yes. They yeah, pay attention yeah. to your line of sight and they don't like being stared at. <laughs> and so, so the sort of paradox is you have an animal that lives in really close association with humans, right. but that is pretty wary of them. 
Now, the contrast to that is Canada jays, which are animals that really need boreal forests. They actually don't do very well uh, with urbanization and urban sprawl. Like they need those intact boreal forests for breeding. But they are just so gosh darn immediately friendly with people. <laughs> it's huh. quite curious. And so you you know if you do It's like they're almost almost naive. They're almost naive, but it's it's more than that. It it seems more intentional. Um huh. and if you Google pictures of Canada Jays, like half the pictures you'll see are people hand feeding them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. that's a, that might be a really familiar image. And Canada just take to being hand fed like immediately. <laughs> so it's it's funny that you have this bird that doesn't sort of live in as close association with people and yet really readily accept, uh, accepts them, which may, you know, we don't really know why that is. Maybe it's because they do live in more extreme environments. And so they're going to be right. more prone to like taking the opportunities as they can. Exactly. That was my first thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm versus crows live in these urban centers and they maybe have the experience to know that people are kind of a mixed bag. <laughs> some of them are nice, and some <laughs> right. of them are not. But there isn't as much pressure to immediately befriend people because you know if you just wait five minutes, you can go to their dumpster. So you know, <laughs> right. I, I don't yeah. know if, if those if that's really how it shakes out. But in my experience, that's certainly how it feels. And so in in that way, there are some really clear differences in sort of how these birds interact with people. Um, but as far as problem solving, you know, I have no doubt that Canada jays are clever, uh, but there really, there hasn't been a lot of work done with cognition in, in this particular group of jays. It's really those scrub jays that get all the cognitive attention. <laughs> huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe it's because there's, they're in places where there are more people, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. But Canada I don't know. Jays are a little harder to access. Um, yeah. Science, maybe. I mean, you're a, you're a really great science communicator too, and on your website and social media and elsewhere. Um, we sort of talked about this a little bit earlier. Do you find that people are really excited about crows and stuff about crows resonates with them, with the general public when you talk about them? Oh yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, crows are such a great um, access point for a lot of people, and you know, and there's a variety of reasons for that. They they live again. They live in areas that maybe aren't as obviously home to many other species of wildlife, though people will be surprised to find how many birds actually live in cities, how many different... Oh, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. You don't really need, you know, any kind of fancy optical equipment to to Mm -hmm. observe them, like binoculars or spotting scopes, any of that stuff. And because they're so charismatic, because they're so smart, they display a lot of behaviors that as you say, really resonate with us. They seem very familiar. Yeah. And so I think because of that, that really catches people at people's attention. They want to understand, like, did I just see what I think I saw? Like, is that <laughs> right. really what they're doing? Is that crow really dropping nuts on the road to open exactly. them up? Exactly. <laughs> did I really just get, like, a present from a crow because I saw it? Or <laughs> yeah. are they really teasing my dog on purpose? Like, all of these questions. And so, uh, so it's been a really wonderful journey to be able to grow not just as a scientist, but as a science communicator and realize that I'm in a position to hopefully open up a a new world of curiosity and knowledge to people through these animals that, you know, maybe they were taken for granted at one point. Absolutely. Kaylee Swift is a Corvid researcher. She's a great science communicator. I would encourage your listeners to check out her blog, corvidresearch.blog. She's also at at Corvid Research on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks so much, uh, Kaylee, and I hope uh, spring comes sooner rather than later for you up in Denali. 
Thanks, Nate. I really enjoyed being on. Bill Thompson III, editor of Birdwatcher's Digest, creator of the American Birding Expo. He was guest right here on the American Birding Podcast a couple times, a longtime friend of the ABA. Passed away last week at his home in Marietta, Ohio, surrounded by friends and family due to pancreatic cancer. Bill was a giant of the modern birding world. And I don't just mean that because he was very tall, because he was that too. He was, I would go so far to say, is as influential a person as can be in our community. A lot, a lot, a lot of what we value has his fingerprints on it. And one only had to look at the outpouring of sadness in response to his passing, the stories upon stories upon stories by field guide authors and tour guides and other influential colleagues, but also people who read his magazine or went on his trips or followed his blog and podcast. You know, just about everyone has a BT3 story where he made them feel valued and important, even if it wasn't a direct interaction with him. One of his most remarkable skills was that he was able to find where you were and meet you there. He was kind and insightful, but also profane and hilarious at times. He cleaned binoculars and taught ID and showed people amazing things and was a first point of contact into the larger birding world for a lot of people. But that was a role he was uniquely suited for. About two years ago, when Chandler Robbins passed away, there were quite a few remembrances of him that focused on his amazing conservation work and his groundbreaking field guide and especially his kindness. For my money, Bill was every bit that kind of figure, even down to the field guide. His, his new birder's guide to the birds of North America is a really exceptional part of the canon. ABA President Jeff Gordon, who knew Bill better than just about anybody, wrote a really moving piece on the ABA blog that you should read if you haven't already. I'll have the link in the notes. It was called A Dozen Things You Can Do to Celebrate Bill Thompson III. And they were all wonderful, but the one that resonated the most with me was number 10. And I will quote that. Today, instead of dazzling people with your skills and talents and expertise, use your powers to help someone else feel more skillful, talented, and expert. I suggest doing it tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. Here's a bonus. They'll still be dazzled by you. You'll have also helped bring out something good in themselves, and they will love and remember you for that forever. And to me, that really gets to the heart of it. Bill was so generous with his praise. If he liked something you were doing, he was quick to tell you that in that sort of very authentic way he had. And, you know, personally, I, I thank him for that. But I also know my story is just one of hundreds of stories that hit on that same theme and that those stories will not stop with his too early death. So you, you can donate to the Bill Thompson III Youth Birding Trust through the Marietta Community Foundation in his memory. Uh, the link is in the notes. It's also on that Jeff Gordon post I told you about. It is a great way to keep his legacy alive. And you can also do it at home, too. So just by being kind and, and going to see a Jer Falcon if you ever get the chance and living this birding life the way that he would, full of passion and surrounded by friends. Godspeed, Bill.
The American Birding Podcast is a product of the American Birding Association. This is the part where I say that we are a membership organization, and if you enjoy this podcast, the best way to help support it is to join the ABA. I'll make the case that you will be helping to support many of the free public resources that the ABA provides the birding community, and I'll try to bring the cell home by noting that you can even get an e-membership if you would prefer to get our publications on the web. You can get more information about membership at aba.org join or aba.org e-member. Special shout out to Steve Mannix of Lane Cove, Australia, John Coonsley of Columbus, Ohio, Joshua and Aaron and Julian Vardos of Lorraine, Ohio, Bruce Murphy of Hilliardton, Ontario, Josh Smith of Enola, Oklahoma, and Sam Corbo of Shorewood, Wisconsin. Who notes that the ABA podcast consistently hits a nice balance between being informative and entertaining. Thank you. That's the balance we're going for. All these people joined or rejoined the ABA in the last couple weeks and noted that the podcast was a reason. Thank you and welcome or welcome back to the ABA. If you're feeling really generous, you can head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. Your feedback helps others to find us. Thanks for that. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He notes that in his experience, American crows will give people they don't like the cold shoulder, but fish crows are more polite. They just say, nah. -uh. Technical production is by John Lowry. He thinks it's pretty unfair that a group of crows is called a murder, when in actuality they are far more likely to send a message by breaking your legs. Additional online help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley. They both think that The Cosby Show started going downhill when Raven Simone was added to the cast in 1989, but only because they missed the opportunity to change the name to The Cosby Show. That's C-A-W-S. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. We are not going to say that Northwestern Crow isn't a full species, but a penchant for cafe lattes and flannel shirts is probably a phenotypic variation rather than something that shows up in their genes. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time. <laughs>